The Talking Point on SAFM. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. At SAFM Radio and at Oliver underscore speaking on Twitter. It is six minutes after 10 a.m. You're listening to The Talking Point. We're coming to you live from the Kruger National Park. We're at uh, the Skokuza Lodge. It's it's hot and humid, but lovely. Absolutely, absolutely loving this. Hyenas are apparently going extinct. I, I had no idea. <laughs> I saw uh, Kanye and I, as we were driving in last night, we saw some hyenas. Uh, and I was quite excited. I didn't know they were going extinct. Neither did I think leopards would go extinct, uh, given that they typically are the nuisance. But apparently... That's that's what's happening. Grant Beverly, the program manager at the Endangered Wildlife Trust, is with me, as well as Dr. Louis Van Skalkveik, who's a state veterinar- veterinarian, is with us as well. Grant, why are they extinct? Why are they going extinct? Hyenas in particular. Kay. They're ugly. I don't like them. So firstly, this is probably a good thing that we hear on air, is that we are talking about African wild dogs and not hyenas going extinct. Are they not the same? <laughs> not the same. So similar looking... Wait, is, is a hyena a wild dog? No. So no, it's not? No, not. So they're completely different. So they're similar looking in terms of their, their coloration, but actually completely different. And hyenas are actually more related to cats or more closely related really? to cats than they are to dogs. Yes. And wild dogs are, are completely unique species in that they're not directly related to domestic dogs even. Uh, wild dogs split from wolves approximately 15 million years ago and are a uh, completely unique species. So wild dogs are going extinct or are at risk of going extinct. They are South Africa's most endangered carnivore. Hyenas, in fact, are actually doing quite well in Kruger National Park. Um, probably one of the most, uh, or in South Africa in general, but in Kruger, hyenas are one of the most uh, prominent species of, of carnivores. Um, wild dogs are going, or at risk of going extinct because they require such large habitats and such large ranges. So if you look at it globally, the, the biggest drivers of, of conservation decline or species decline are habitat fragmentation and, and loss of available Sorry, safe space. Um, habitats becoming separated from each other, so pockets or, or different um, areas that are no longer connected because um, of human population growth or, or density of, of, of population and right. development increasing. And that's the two main drivers of, of potential population decline, is habitat fragmentation and, and increased population, which is making the available habitat too small for for a species. And yeah. so even an area like Kruger National Park, which is over 2 million hectares, only um, houses a population of just over 250 adult wild dogs. Yeah. And that's essentially the... The crux of it is that they require incredibly large spaces. Um, and Kruger is the only viable, single, contiguous population of, of wild dogs in South Africa. The rest are all small little pockets that aren't viable. Yeah. Talk to us about then what your program seeks to do to bring them out of risk of extinction. Sure. So um, Endangered Wildlife Trust started in 1973, um, focusing on, on cheetah, and it's involved to, to wild dogs being South Africa's most endangered carnivore. And the focus is to reduce the, the threats that wild dogs are facing, which is when they move outside of the boundaries of protected areas. So even though Kruger's large, they do still move outside the boundaries into community and private lands uh, where they're at risk of persecution. Um, they at risk of anthropogenic threats such as snaring uh, and disease. So those are the Sorry, three. What's, what's snaring? 
So snares are, it's a form of, of hunting essentially, which is a wire noose or loop that um, a poacher is using to target antelope species right. for food, um, but it's indiscriminate. So wild dogs are then caught in those snares unintentionally. Right. Um, and, and that is unfortunate reality that that's because it's indiscriminate, um, you know, wild dogs do then just come along while they're looking for an impala and they get caught in that snare. And it can be, it can be detrimental to the population because of, of how many snares are being set. set. Yeah. Uh, and then disease. Uh, so canine stem pan rabies and Dr. Louis van Skolkbeck can speak uh, more to, to the threats or the potential uh, threat for, for disease. But those are the three main components that, would, that we're focusing on to reduce those human-induced threats to ensure that the population within Kruger National Park um, thrives and, and remains stable. Yeah. Louis, wild dogs hunt antelope? What hunt wild dogs? Lions. Uh, yeah, so so lions is uh, he was talking about all these threats, but he's talking about all the sort of unnatural ones. <laughs> so <laughs> so they're more likely to be killed by by something like a lion or hyena or maybe another wild dog. So a hyena thing. kills white do- wild Sometimes. dogs. Sometimes. So so they've got a very strange love hate relationship. You often drive and then you find the wild dog and hyena lying sleeping next to each other, and the next day you you might witness a big fight between them and they might kill each other. So so strange relationship, um, but. But yes, is it a symbiotic relationship? I'm not too sure. Look, hyenas would follow them. I think quite often, Grant's probably more more qualified than I am. But the hyenas would often follow them for you know to share in the food, I guess. Uh, but then wild dogs don't leave a lot uh, behind when they eat. You know, they they eat uh, fast and all of them together. Uh, but, but I think uh, typical scavengers, you know, hyenas would would try to to make the most of of any other carnivore sort of activities. But but yeah, they they often together. Yeah, talk to me about the unnatural threats that they're facing, such as I don't know if disease would be one of them. What's what's the main cause there? Yeah, so disease is a threat. Uh, I mean, uh, it's a it's not something that uh, we often try to quantify these things and say how many percentage of deaths, you know, whatever are from disease. Unfortunately, disease when it happens, it often happens in a in a in a big bang, you know, but like a COVID, you know. So if it, sure. if, it, if if it starts spreading, you know, obviously it can have some impact. So so the diseases. Uh, Grant mentioned rabies and distemper. They don't often happen. So, so first of all, I don't think it's a it's a case of every single day we see it or we worry about it. But there's this there is this threat that when it happens, it could be quite severe. You know, and often it kills. You know, so that's the other thing. Rabies always kills. Uh, or 95% of the time, it kills. So, so we always have to be vigilant. You know, and the other thing Grant mentioned as well was that there's a lot of c- contact with domestic animals and people. You know, so so domestic dogs sometimes do enter the park. Uh, wild dogs of, often go out to out the park, and they might have contact with domestic dogs that also carry these same diseases so they share those diseases so domestic dogs are a threat disease wise to definitely yes. um, are these respiratory diseases uh, canine distemper has got a respiratory compon- component yes also a nervous system component so they sometimes get seizures but they often start with a very severe pneumo- pneumonia it's actually related to measles in humans and it's one of the most contagious diseases of uh, the virus families actually one of the most contagious virus families on earth so it's, it's a very interesting disease so that, that's why the threat even though it doesn't happen often, when it does happen, a few years ago in, in East Africa, they lost a population as last, large as Kruger's. Uh, they lost 95% of the population in, this, in, in an outbreak of distemper. So the, the threat is real, but it's not something, it's not a doomsday story, you know. So we have to, I think we have to be careful. But that, And that's why we embarked on monitoring sort of more intensively. So yeah. we... We put a collar on each pack in the park. Uh, we try and look at their movements in real time. So they move in packs? 
they're moving packs absolutely they den seasonally once a year they they get their pups there's normally an alpha female that's that sort of lead of the pack uh, and uh, so there's a very nice uh, social hierarchy again grants grants uh, more the expert in this and then um, and that's also why they're so susceptible to disease because once disease enters that pack they're so uh, um, uh, in such close contact it spreads very fast and you you often lose ah. the entire pack yeah. oh interesting uh, what's the reason for them being matriarchal in, in, in a sense, especially if they're under such big threat? So, I mean, they're matriarchal in that it's important for uh, uh, a pack that's, the, in, if you look at the carnivore hierarchy, they're actually lower down in the pecking order than lions, leopard, and hyena, for example. So the the alpha female that's, that's leading the pack, it's important for her to have pups every year. Uh, what's that? Sorry? Pups. You mentioned it, uh, Dr. Van Skalkik, but I, I'm not sure what that is. Yeah, so that's just uh, what you would, we would call a young a young wild dog, exactly the same as uh, a Oh, like a puppy. Yeah, oh, a puppy. you mean puppy. Okay, I thought it was a technical uh, <laughs> medical term relating to Excellent. disease. <laughs> no, no, no. So okay. just, yeah, just the, the pups. And then what makes wild dogs interesting is that they're cooperative breeders in that every single individual in the pack helps raise those pups. Because ah. because of the threat that they have from from other large carnivores like lions, it the the bond between individuals in the pack ensures that they they can thrive. Um, yeah. So yeah, it is important in that, that that hierarchical structure. And interesting that it's led by a female, you know, which is is quite unique within the in the carnivore sort of world or, or guild that the alpha female is is the queen of the pack and yeah. the leader of the pack. Yeah. Zero eight six triple zero two zero three two. Give us a call if you have a question for Grant or Louis. You can also send us a WhatsApp voice note zero six one four one zero four. One zero seven. We're taking your calls over there. So, uh, Louis, why do domestic dogs make it into the Kruger Park? I, I, surely there should be something against. <laughs> I mean, uh, in my mind, this is how I imagine it: somebody's pit bull escaped the yard in a neighboring community, strayed away somehow, and found itself in the Kruger Park and can't find its way back. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, it, it is interesting. Well, first of all, there's obviously a fence around the park, uh, but uh, I mean, it's 800 kilometers of, of, of different landowners and whatever around the park. Uh, but it's it's more built to keep some of the bigger species out, and you will you will almost never keep a carnivore in with a fence. You know they go through any fence. It doesn't matter what you build. Um, and and Grant can attest to that with where these dogs end up. You know even on the best game farms with the best fences, they still go through them. So so that is the the one um, the one aspect to it. But then. Um, Dog, domestic dogs, uh, it's interesting, a, f- a few years ago there was a really good study in one of the private reserves that, that showed that the dogs that they found inside the reserve were more likely to have rabies than the dogs outside the reserve, which which means the disease might have some effect on that, or maybe the owners uh, throw them over the fence because they see this dog is acting strangely. Yeah, but I mean, as a domestic dog owner, I would take my dog to the vet more regularly, I would assume, than you yeah. would see a wild dog in, yeah. in, in the park. Yeah, we're talking about communities here that, that uh, vast uh, sort of areas around the park that's it's, uh, mostly communal farming or subsistence farming. Uh, uh, um, so often they don't have access to these kind of services. There's oh, state wow. veterinary services out there that would help them where they can, but it's not nearly the same as me and you taking our dog to a private vet, which which already for us is quite uh, tough to afford some days. So for them, it's almost impossible. So they've got they've got some access to these guys uh, uh, through state veterinary services, but then um, and it's quite important. That's why there's big campaigns to vaccinate uh, domestic dogs against rabies, especially because rabies kills humans too. Fortunately, yeah. the temper doesn't. So rabies is really the important one from a from a larger perspective but but then you know for them to get access to these vaccines for the veterinary services to get access to get to all the people 
you need some big drives and you often need some outside help from from non-profits or whatever to come in and, and help access all these people get all those dogs vaccinated and you need to vaccinate up to 70 percent of the population to prevent it from happening which is a huge number of animals you know so so it's it's not easy to to say you know let's just sort out the domestic dogs and then the the wild dogs would be fine you know i think it, it comes from both sides and that's also so we do what we can from the inside and we know our colleagues on the outside do what they can uh, um, to to vaccinate so it's difficult to vaccinate the dogs in the park the wild dogs in the park it is quite difficult you have to you have to physically do it you have to dart them and obviously that's a risk you know if you break break a leg you can't take them to hospital like a domestic dog you know they they need each other and they're obviously wild animals so you need them under anesthetic so so you prefer not to intervene if you don't have to with wild animals you know so if we can stay away from vaccinating every single dog we do because otherwise we might end up killing more dogs than we save you know so, yeah. so that's not the idea so um so when we do vaccinate them we vaccinate a much lower percentage and that's actually just to protect a core of the population but in domestic dogs, you obviously go for the higher number and you, you try to encourage every owner out there to, to vaccinate his dogs against, especially rabies and distemper. Yeah. Uh, Grant, what would be lost if wild dogs go extinct? Uh, why are they important in the ecosystem? So, I mean, I think it's important to note that it's not, it's not about the individual species. So your question is quite pertinent in that we're looking at what the role carnivores play in an ecosystem. And a carnivore like wild dogs that are successful hunters, they regulate the system by regulating the prey prey numbers. So if you have an increase in, in impala, that actually can have a negative effect on the health of, of the vegetation uh, because there's too many, they're eating too much. And then so wild dogs also prey on the weak and sick animals. So it's regulating the health of, of the prey population, which is then in turn good for the overall health of the ecosystem. So losing a carnivore, losing that top order predator can have a, a serious negative effect on the overall health of the ecosystem. So it is important important to yeah. conserve carnivores. What other carnivores are at risk? Sure. I mean, in terms of endangered carnivores in South Africa, so the criteria that is used is the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, and they, they categorize the, the risk of extinction based on if they're endangered, vulnerable, or there's no concern. And and unfortunately, all large carnivores in, in South Africa are, are categorized to be vulnerable to extinction. And that's uh, cheetah, uh, probably, well, cheetah is the other, the, they are occurring low densities in Kruger National Park. So that's, that's the next sort of predator that is at most risk. And then lions and leopards. Um, the lions are vulnerable. Yes, yeah. So lions, uh, um, and in South Africa, it's actually slightly different to the the um, situation in the rest of Africa. Lions have declined by as much as 80% in, in other countries in Africa. And that really comes yeah. from, from targeted poisoning and targeted poaching of lions for, for the bone trade, you know. So people often think about or speak Sorry, about... Sorry, there's a lion bone trade market. Yes, there's a lion bone trade market to the east. Um, and it's kind of replaced the, the market for, for tiger bones in Asia. And, and they are targeting, even within protected areas, poachers are targeting lions for, for the bone trade. Um, and poisoning is, is one of the, the methods that's used there. So that's, that's something that Endangered Wildlife Trust and Sandparks, um, in collaboration with, with the state vets, are, are also focusing on at the moment in that there's targeted poaching and poisoning of lions. And so as a species, they're also at risk, even within protected areas. Are they at risk uh, in other countries outside of South Africa? Yes, they are, unfortunately. Um, 
And that links back to the, the two biggest drivers of, of concern for a species going extinct is availability of safe space. So as human populations increase, the availability of protected conservation areas become, become less and less. And, and that's the, the biggest threat. So outside of South Africa, that is, that is a threat as well. So we need better security. Um, I wouldn't say it's specifically linked to security because, you know, there is this, this historical notion that, that fences keep people out and keep animals in. And, and that's almost not the right way to go about More it. More ranges? More ranges is an option, but, uh, you know, there's cost implications associated with that as well. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's also a reala reality in conservation is that Conservation costs money, and there's not always money available for conservation, and that's why we rely on collaboration and support from, from a wide variety of donors and supporters that, that contribute towards, towards the costs associated with conservation. So more ranges, more boots on the ground is always, you know, uh, it goes a long way. Yeah. And even in terms of the monitoring with wild dogs, you can't, regardless of the technology that we're using and collars and systems to improve our monitoring, boots on the ground and, and eyes and ears to, to see what's happening with the population and to monitor them continuously is important to see what's happening to the population. Yeah. Louis, what carnivore do you have on your desk most? <laughs> you mean that I work with or, 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 or to treat? Treat. Uh, well, I'm, I'm completely biased because I work with wild dogs a lot. You yeah. know, so that's by far the most common animal I work with, but that's just because of this, this effort we're putting into them. But then the the second most is probably hyenas and snares, you know. So unfortunately, just like you explained now with the snares before, the other carnivores are are all as vulnerable to these snares as as the wild dogs are. So so I guess hyenas after wild dogs, and then then probably lions. Yeah, um, hyenas being caught in these snares is a bit weird for me because aren't they like, don't they come after the fact, right? When there's just some skin and bone left. Not not necessarily because I think uh, uh, what the poachers do is they set these uh, snare traps on animal paths where we you know a well sort of trade path and all the animals actually use those paths. And when a, a hyena's on patrol ah. looking for whatever to scavenge, he will go through exactly the same path as, as the wild dogs would and the antelope would and even the buffalo and the hippo would. So, uh, so no, I think uh, like Grant said as well, it's also a, a in, it's sort of incidental that they walk through these snares, they're not targeted. But then they get stuck. The only difference is normally the antelope would get stuck uh, in the snare and the snare is tied to a tree. So then it dies right there where the snare is set. These carnivores are quite strong. They often bite through cable or, or, or wire. So often when you treat these animals afterwards, they've, they've lost half their teeth, you know, broken off on this wire, trying to chew them off. It's life and death. They eventually come out of the snare or they break loose from the tree. And then that's when we find them on the roads and we, we can dart them and, um, and treat them. But, but many of them also die on that tree, you know, right there where they got caught. And we never know about it or when we find them, it's too late. So the collared ones, we'll see the, the animal might have died. We rush out there and then they would be dead right there. So, so the snare is a horrible death. That's all I can yeah. say. So tell me, tell, t talk, talk me through the monitoring exercise. Uh, where does it start and, and, and what data are you collecting? Yeah, so there's a there's a few sides. So the technology side of it's that we we put a collar on each pack in the in the um, in the park or in the in the greater Kruger. So even the private reserves open to Kruger. We then um, read this data in real time into a, a computer-based system that that looks at their movements, and then at the same time we use data uh, of where snares were found by rangers, and uh, develop a risk map of that. And then when we know that these animals are moving in high-risk areas, uh, we send alerts out uh, uh, through the system automatically to let us know uh, which packs are probably at, at highest risk. And then we can just increase our monitoring of these packs, hopefully get there sooner, hopefully realize sooner that some dogs are missing. 
or whatever. So that that's the technological side of it. Yeah. But then he mentioned the boots on the ground side of it. Someone has to actually go and look, you know. So and then and then what Grant and them. Uh, so is it you or is it the ranger? Uh, it's all of us. You know, so it's, I think the first part is the communication to us and the rangers that there's a risk, and then whoever can can has the time to spare because remember the ranger, rangers are also re- very busy with other things. You know, so yeah. we, we whoever can go first, we go and have a look at the pack. We also rely a lot on tourist reports. You know, seeing a pack of wild dogs if they don't see the snare there, then at least we know there was no snares at that moment in the pack. But then Grant them also does focal monitoring where they go out on a regular basis to a pack without any warning or anything, just to go and look at is that pack fine? How many dogs in that pack? Did they den? How many pups? We can see from the collar data when they start denning, how long they've you know where they denning, all these things. So 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 there's there's components, the different components to it. Grant's also quite good at, at monitoring social media for what you know people are seeing and noticing. Oh, so you guys monitor social media to see if there were reports? Yeah, hundred percent. You know, so any social media platforms, we we I'm looking at almost permanently to to see if there are reports or any concerns raised. And then there's also direct um, reports to us. So Endangered Wildlife Trust has run in collaboration with Sandparks a a census of of wild dogs in cheetah every five years since 1989-1990. So that continued ongoing monitoring um, every five years gives us an indication of what the, the population is doing. And then that's also then led to this focal monitoring. And I mean, I just... It, I just want to also reiterate that in terms of the monitoring, it sounds doom and gloom, yeah. but the population is actually doing well. Because we're doing the monitoring and because we, we, we're keeping a close eye on them, the population is stable and actually increasing. When I started, I started the, the Wild Dog uh, Project um, in Kruger in 2010, so now you know more than 10 years ago, and the population has increased since then. Um, but the monitoring and the increased effort and work that we're putting in is is sort of a, an addition to the fact that the, the population's doing well. Kruger is a protected area, and the population's increased by over 100 percent in in the last 10 years. Oh wow! Because the the effort that's put in allows us to reduce the impact that these these threats so are having. So what what are the targets to take them out of endangered into vulnerable? It's quite it's quite complicated in terms of it's not just about numbers, you know, it's about the the overall look of the 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 outcome of the population. Um, so we talk about Kruger National Park being an important population because it's the only viable one. So we're not talking just about numbers. We're talking about availability of safe space, areas outside of the Kruger National Park that are suitable for, for wild dogs. And, and we, we've expanded that to increase wild dogs outside of Kruger by introduction into other private reserves or other protected areas. Um, and the, yeah, the, the, the details are quite... Um, complicated it's not just about numbers there's a there's a whole list that the IUCN goes through um, in order to downlist them from endangered to vulnerable for example um, and we, we're close to that that in South Africa South Africa is actually the only country that's got an increasing population of wild dogs which has then s- seen us introduce wild dogs into areas outside of South Africa where they had gone extinct so Mozambique for example uh, we're collaborating with with neighboring countries to introduce or reintroduce wild dogs into those populations and they've done incredibly well in Mozambique for example since the introduction the population has increased to a point where they're actually they they're becoming yeah. uh, more viable. So uh, there is we we're on the brink of downlisting them in, in in South Africa, but you have to keep the finger on the pulse. There's no exit strategy in conservation, which <laughs> is which is part yeah. of the the difficulty. You have to work on it all the time. Is it expensive monitoring? 
It is. You know, the technology is incredibly valuable, but it is expensive. Uh, just a GPS tracking collar, a satellite collar that we were using at the, at the start of this, this particular project was 60,000 Rand. And that collar only lasts for 12 to 18 months, and then you have to replace it. Jeez. My goodness. <laughs> Grant Beverly, Program Manager at the Endangered uh, Wildlife Trust. Dr. Louis van Skalkbeek was a state vet. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for your time. Really, really appreciate it. Fascinating stuff. And thank you for the work you're doing, bringing them back. Uh, it is half past ten. Time for your news headlines.